Our only hope of obeying God's commands is if God gives us the power. And that power will always come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, using the Word of God in our hearts and minds. And it is a work we can either encourage or we can hinder. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing his series titled, Watch Where You Step. We're learning through this series that if we're going to walk as true believers in Jesus Christ, we must walk in wisdom. As you discovered last time, essential to walking in wisdom is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Today, Tom will look more closely at what it means for believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how this filling occurs, and what the filling of the Spirit produces within the believer. And friends, you may be surprised by what the Bible has to say about your responsibility as a believer who's filled with the Spirit. Let's join Tom now as we learn more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Several years ago, I received a piece of mail that I'm sure some of you have received, letting me know that it was my wonderful opportunity to fulfill my civic duty. In other words, it was time for me to serve on jury duty. And uh, at that time, I actually ended up being part of the jury pool for a criminal trial. The defendant was accused of drunk driving, and we sat there, the few of us who, out of whom the jurors would ultimately be called, listening to the defense attorney. And he began by reminding all of us through a series of placards exactly what the Texas statute on DUI is. He then proceeded to ask several of us what we thought about the law, and specifically to ask us if we thought the law was fair. I remember a few of the other responses that people had, but when it came my turn, I, I said something like this, as respectfully as I knew how. I said, you know, as I understand it, our opinions about this specific law isn't really the issue. Our job as jurors, as I understand, is simply to decide whether or not your client is guilty of violating the law as it's written. I think it was my response to that question that got me dismissed. <laughs> but as I thought about that specific situation and the crime of driving under the influence of which that man was accused, it occurred to me that we all live under the influence of something. Paul makes this very point in several of his letters. He says that you and I consistently live out our lives either primarily under the influence of the flesh, that is, our fallenness, our unredeemed humanness, or under the influence of the Spirit of God. That's it. Every person here, without exception, is living under the primary influence of the flesh or of the Spirit. Paul makes this point in Romans 8, passage we looked at last week. He makes it in Galatians 5, and as well as a number of other passages. In Ephesians 5, the passage that we come to again this morning, Paul demands that those of us who are new in Christ, those of us who have that new position that he described in the first three chapters, that we no longer live under the influence of the flesh, 
but that we consistently live instead under the influence of the Spirit of God. We are learning that if we're going to walk worthy of our new position in Christ, then we must walk in biblical wisdom. In verses 15 to 18 of chapter 5, we see the command to walk in biblical wisdom. And as we've sort of unpacked those four verses, we've seen that in the command itself, there are also the the components or the path to a life of biblical wisdom. If we're going to follow that command, then we need to first of all examine our ways. Verse 15. Verse 16, we need to seize every opportunity to pursue that wisdom. Verse 17. Number three, we need to understand God's will. A life of biblical wisdom flows out of an understanding of God's revealed will in His Word. Last week, we began to look at the fourth crucial component of a life of biblical wisdom, and that is be filled with Christ's Spirit. Be filled with Christ's Spirit. If you're going to walk in biblical wisdom, the Spirit is absolutely integral to that process. Look at verse 18. Here's where he tells us, if you're going to walk in wisdom, then you need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We laid the foundation or groundwork for, us, for grasping what Paul means here when he says be filled with the Spirit. We examined the New Testament role of the Spirit. We started by going back to the Old Testament and saying, what was the role of the Spirit in the life of Old Testament believers? We said primarily that involved regeneration, that is the impartation of new life to the individual sinner as he exhibited faith and repentance, just as in the New Testament. It also, the work of the Spirit was also sanctification, that is the progressive making more, progressively making more and more holy the individual believer And then there was thirdly the special empowering for a specific task that came on the kings, for example, the prophets, and on others. That's the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament. Then we said, well, how does that role change when it comes to the New Testament? And primarily in two ways. One of those is by the indwelling of the Spirit. Now, several people asked me last week, and I I tried to make it clear, but let me just reiterate. It's not that the Spirit wasn't coming alongside and assisting people in the Old Testament. He had to be. No one can be perfected or made holy by the flesh, Galatians 3 says. Therefore, if they were made holy in the Old Testament, and they were, then it had to be a work of the Spirit. He had to have an abiding presence with them. You say, so what's the difference between that and what happened at Pentecost when the the indwelling of the Spirit is made a big deal of? I would say this, you have to think of it like this when it comes to the indwelling of the Spirit. It's not that what happened in the Old Testament was A and what happened in the New Testament was B. Instead, it's more like when it comes to the indwelling of the Spirit, what happened in the Old Testament was little A, what happens in the New Testament is big A. There is something more intense about the presence of the Spirit in the mind and heart of believers than was present in the Old Testament times. There's a second change in the Spirit's work when it comes to the New Testament and after Pentecost, and that is what Paul calls the baptism of the Spirit. This is what happens to every Christian, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, at the moment of salvation. We are all baptized, no water in that verse, we are all immersed into Jesus Christ. We are all 
connected to Christ and connected to each other. That's the role of the Spirit, the unique role of the Spirit in the New Testament, this new intense indwelling and the baptism of the Spirit. Then we talked about the current confusion about the Spirit, and it's everywhere, and it stems from those movements that we discussed, and we finished our time by looking at the common flawed views of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Today, I want us to examine the true filling of the Spirit. If we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in biblical wisdom, we have to understand what it means. What actually is the filling of the Spirit? When does it happen? And how does it happen? Now, we're going to come back to Ephesians 5.18, trust me. But first, we need to look at this concept in the rest of the New Testament because it will set the table for understanding Ephesians 5. The New Testament uses two distinct word groups in the Greek text, two different Greek word groups, both of which are translated filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit. These two different Greek word groups, listen carefully, describe two different kinds of filling. Now, just to keep our minds clear, just for the sake of clarity, let's call one of them special empowering and the other normal filling. So, special empowering, normal filling. Let's look first at the first word group that we've called special empowering. This word group, this Greek word group, describes an event when the Spirit uniquely equips someone for a specific time and purpose. There are no conditions to the person being filled like this. It just happens. God sovereignly decides to do it. It can happen to the same person on different occasions. It is a divine enabling for a specific spiritual task. It's very similar to what happened in the Old Testament when the Spirit of God would come upon a king to empower him to fulfill his responsibilities or a prophet or a judge, etc. It's an event. It could happen once and last for a lifetime as long as they were in that role. It could happen once and last for only a short period of time. It could happen repeated times throughout that person's life. That's essentially this word group in the New Testament. Now let me show you what this looks like. Now keep in mind there are two different Greek words. You can't see that in English, but in the Greek we are dealing with two different Greek words. Let me show you this first word group in the New Testament, special empowering by the Spirit. Turn back to Luke. Luke loves this word, this word group. Luke chapter 1. It begins with Gabriel's prophecy about John the Baptist. In Luke 1, verse 15, Gabriel says this to Zacharias, For he will be great, speaking of John the Baptist, in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be, watch this, filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He's going to be specially empowered for this unique task while he's still in his mother's womb and throughout his life as he carries out this unique mission. He's going to be specially empowered. Later in chapter 1, verse 41, again, to affirm that the baby growing in Mary is in fact the Messiah, verse 41 says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, this is her cousin, her older cousin, 
The baby inside Elizabeth leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women. She prophesied, essentially, saying, Here is the mother of the Messiah. Later in the same chapter, verse 67, after John the Baptist was born, eight days later he was circumcised and named John. Finally, Zacharias could speak again, And verse 67 said, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's an event, a special empowering. And as a result, he prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And then you have that wonderful song of Zacharias in the verses that follow. Turn over to Acts. You see the same thing in the book of Acts, a special empowering for a special ministry. Acts chapter 2, we're on the day of Pentecost. Verse 4 says, as that group sat there in the upper room, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's an event. And as a result, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. By the way, just as an aside, it's a lot of confusion about what speaking speaking in tongues is in the Scripture. This is where it all starts. Whatever it is in the rest of Scripture, it is here. In fact, if you go to chapter 10, Peter says, this is what happened to us at the beginning. So all through the book of Acts, it refers back to this event. Notice what happened here in verse 8. We each hear them in our own dialect to which we were born. So the apostles were enabled by this special filling of the Spirit to speak in languages that they had not studied so that the people could understand the proclamation of the Word of God. That's what speaking in tongues is and was. Now, turn over, and and this all happened out of the filling of the Spirit there in verse 4. Special empowering for a specific duty there on the day of Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Now persecution has begun, and Peter, verse 8 says, notice the marginal reference there, the little one, if you have the New American Standard. Peter having just been filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he speaks. Now remember, he was filled back on the day of Pentecost, and here he is just having been filled again at some point in the future during this persecution. It's special empowering for a particular ministry or task. Verse 31 of the same chapter, after they're released from custody, They pray, and verse 31 says, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here it is again, same group, Peter, a third time. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and began as a result to speak the Word of God with boldness. Again, special empowering for specific ministry. Acts chapter 9, you see it with Paul. Acts chapter 9 and verse 17, this man named Ananias shows up in Damascus to lay hands on Paul, known then as Saul. Verse 17 says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and so that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit for that unique ministry that he's going to give you. Uh, Verse 15 describes that unique ministry. Chapter 13, now remember, Paul has already been filled with the Spirit, but it happens again here, Acts 13, verse 9. Again, in the face of opposition to the gospel, there 
on the first missionary journey. Verse 9 says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, having been filled, having just been filled with the Holy Spirit, as you see the marginal reference again, he fixed his gaze on him. So you see it is an event. In each case, this word group marks an event, a special empowering for a specific situation, and we are never told to seek this kind of filling. God just does it by his own sovereign choice when and with whom he chooses. That's the first word group, special empowering. The second word group for filling with the Spirit in the New Testament designates what we have called normal filling. Normal filling describes the ongoing condition or state of a person. With this with this group of words, there are implied conditions. In other words, you can aid it or you can hinder it. You can help it or you can hurt it. And rather than an event, it seems to be just a normal characteristic of the life. It's how the person is known. It's not an event that happens once or time after time. Instead, it is simply a, an attribute or characteristic of who they are. Now, let me give you these references in their context, the second group of Greek words. And let me just, I'll share the references with you. You don't need to turn there. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 describes Jesus as full of the Holy Spirit, as a condition, as a state. Acts chapter 6 verse 3, when the first uh, sort of predecessors to the, to the office of deacon are selected, it says, brethren, select from you seven men of good reputation who are full of the Spirit. This is their state or condition. This is their, how they're characterized. Verse 5 of the same chapter, they chose Stephen, a man who was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. This was who he was. Acts 7.55 describes Stephen again as being full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 11.24 says Barnabas was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Those were characteristics of who he was. Acts 13.52, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So let me summarize this. You have these two word groups, each describing a different kind of filling. Special empowering describes unexpected, sovereign acts of divine enablement for a specific task or purpose. God determines who gets it and when, and we are never told to seek that kind of filling. The second word group describes normal filling. It describes a condition or a state of the person's soul. Think about it. To be full of something consistently means that you are characterized by that quality. What if I said, you see that person over there? He is full of anger. What do I mean by that? I mean, he's characterized by anger. Or I say, that person is full of pride. It means they're characterized by pride. So when the New Testament describes someone as full of the Spirit, it's saying that that person's life is as a state or condition characterized by the presence of the Spirit. By the Spirit. So, with that background, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Here, in verse 18, Paul uses the second Greek word group. 
that refers to an ongoing state or a condition. He's not talking about the kind of filling that is an event or repeated events, but it's a state or condition of the soul, a characteristic of the person that can vary in its intensity. Think about two people who are under the influence of alcohol. One of them may be at a higher level of under the influence of alcohol than another. Even so, when it comes to this state or condition of being filled by the Spirit, people can vary in the degree of which they are filled by the Spirit, but it is a state. Now look at verse 18 for a moment, the second half. We'll come back to the first, to the first half, but look at the second half of the verse. Be filled with the Spirit. Literally, the Greek verb is a present tense command. You could translate it, it's awkward, but you could translate it something like this, be being filled with the Spirit. Or you could say, be continually filled by the Spirit. Whatever this means, it's not a one-time event, nor is it an event that is to be repeated from time to time in our lives. Instead, it is to be a constant reality, a state or condition of our souls. So let's look at it. How can we further understand what this means? Well, first, I want you to see the illustration here. What does being filled with the Spirit look like? The answer is the first half of verse 18. Look at it again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Paul says as Christians, we are not to get drunk with wine, or for that matter, as we will see with anything else. Paul is probably quoting here the Septuagint translation of Proverbs 23, 31. But whether you're talking about that passage or this passage, or throughout the Scriptures, the Bible does not allow those who are truly connected to God to become intoxicated or to be under the influence of alcohol. The Bible does not prohibit the drinking of wine, the drinking of alcoholic substances, That's an issue of Christian liberty, as we've looked at before, but it absolutely prohibits being drunk or under their influence. Let me show you several texts. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. The proverb writes, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Get Proverbs 23. Verse 29, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions or fightings, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And then it describes the state of inebriation, a state of being drunk. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I didn't become ill. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When shall I awake? I shall seek another drink. The Old Testament is filled, the prophets particularly, with rebuke of God's people for being drunk, for drinking to intoxication. But let's look at the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Just in case you think all of that's sort of past tense with our Christian liberty. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 
Paul tells the Corinthians, listen, when I told you not to associate with sinners, I didn't mean unbelievers. Because all unbelievers are sinners. They're given to lifestyles of sin. You have to leave the world. Instead, verse 11, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. In other words, anybody who says, I'm a Christian, if he is an immoral person, or a covetous person, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, not even to eat with such a one. Don't connect yourself or have fellowship with or affirm in any way a person who says, I'm a Christian, and lives in a pattern of getting drunk, of being intoxicated. They're living in sin. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, Watch Where You Step. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program. Join us, won't you? We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.